want to speak this morning about Thanksgiving, but I want to talk about it not so much as about a, a holiday, but really as a lifestyle, as a lifestyle. Uh, one of my favorite books as a child growing up was Winnie the Pooh. Anybody read Winnie the Pooh, watch Winnie the Pooh when we were kids? We didn't have a lot of options, but Winnie the Pooh was, was a big one for me. And in one particular book, the author wrote this about Piglet, and I want this to stick with us this morning. He said this. He said, Piglet noticed that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. Isn't that cute? Even though he had a very small heart, it could still hold a rather large amount of gratitude. I really believe this morning that the one thing that really can change everything about the way you see your life and the way you do life is simply gratitude. But in order for that to really have an impact in your life, you have to have a heart that really can hold a rather large amount of it. I want to read the scripture from, uh, from the words of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote these words, he was in prison. And prison isn't what it is today, as bad as prison is in any day. But in Paul's day, you were thrown in a dungeon. It was dark, it was damp, it was infested. In the middle of that, Paul writes these words that you wouldn't expect coming from that kind of place. He said this, I have learned how to be content in whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or on everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul said, I have had to learn the secret how in everything to experience God's fullest potential for me. And as I read that scripture, I thought, Lord, I want to learn that too. I want to learn that too. It's not something that just comes automatic. I want to think that way. Now, I know that when we hear about the idea of thankfulness, or somebody says you ought to be thankful, a lot of times the first thing that comes to our mind is, is something like this. We say, well, well, that's easy for them to say. That's easy for that person to say we ought to be thankful. They have a nice life, or they have a nice family, or they have a nice car or job, or, or they have a nice you know, home, or they have hair on their head, or whatever it may be. You know, they're, they're, they just have so much going for them, it's easy to say. And it's really easy, I find, for us today in our culture especially, to fall into what we call the comparison trap. And the thing about ingratitude is ingratitude will make you fall into that all the time. Consistently, you will be comparing yourself with other people. Now, another word for the comparison trap is the word envy. Here's what envy is. Envy is resenting God's goodness in someone else's life while ignoring his goodness in your own. Let me say that again. Envy is resenting God's goodness in someone else's life while ignoring his goodness in your own. You know, a lot of times we think of envy, we just kind of think of it as a lesser sin. It's not really a big deal. But when you read through the Word of God, you will find time and time and again when it's mentioned, oftentimes it's included in a list of other things that aren't really that nice. Things like lying, anger, orgies, hypocrisy, slander, stealing, murder. Envy's in that same list. And yet a lot of us wouldn't, you know, kind of put envy and murder in the same category, but the reality is that envy unchecked in our lives really does have murderous effects. It has devastating effects. Most of us are aware that uh, research has shown that envy is even bad for your health. You cannot be an envious person and be a healthy person at the same time. Because what envy does, first of all, is envy begins to chip away at your insides until your peace is gone. And then your gratitude 
is gone. And then your joy is gone. And when your joy is gone, your strength is gone. And when your strength is gone, what happens, your strength gets replaced by anxiety and fear and anger. And all those kind of thoughts begin to fill your heart until you have headaches and you have backaches and your blood pressure starts going through the roof. That's the effect that envy can have. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Isn't that true? A heart at peace is what you need because envy, anger, those things even rot you on the inside. Solomon said something that really describes our culture, I think, to a T. In Ecclesiastes 4, he said this, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. But this, too, is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Most people are motivated by envy of their neighbors. Vanessa was watching a program the other night. She mentioned to me, it's called Life or Death. You ever see that one or hear about it? Life or Death. And I guess basically it's for people who need to get their finances in order. And so they invite a financial expert to come into their home, look at everything, give them a game plan, and then they have to make the sacrifices to actually make this plan work. Well, in this particular couple's example, they had just begun their second marriage. They were married three, weeks, or three months previous, and so they had a lot of stuff coming into that, a lot of possessions, a lot of debt, and so on. Uh, but one of the things that they had, as far as current debt, is they had just spent $33,000 on their wedding and honeymoon. And every single penny was on their credit cards. So they had that debt. Uh, they had a large house, large mortgage, lived in a beautiful neighborhood, so they had that weight upon them. Uh, the husband had bought a car not too long ago. He still had about $35,000 owing on his car. Uh, his wife had bought one of those nice Teslas. You ever see those Teslas? Kind of like environmental, you know? I'm not quite sure how that goes. You, know, you save the environment, but you ruin your life. Um, so she had spent over $100,000 on that car. And so you can imagine the kind of debt they were looking at, not to mention all the incidental things, other credit cards and everything else that they had on the go. The thing was, they only made together about $100,000 themselves per year. And so the financial experts said to them, among other things, they said, the very first thing you've got to do is you've got to sell that Tesla. You've got to get rid of that $100,000 car. Now, they weren't too happy about that, but she was willing to make that sacrifice. But what stood out to me as Vanessa was sharing the story was that at some point in time, the husband said to this financial expert, he said, well, wait a minute. He said, that's not fair. He said, when you look around our neighborhood, he said, everybody has nice cars in their driveway. We should be able to have a nice car too. And the man simply looked at him and said, yes, they do have nice cars. They have nice homes. But what you don't realize is that most of them are also one paycheck away from financial ruin. So we get into this comparison trap. It's what one person called living in the land of Ur. You ever hear about that? Living in the land of Ur. You ever been there? The land of Ur is that place where it's not enough to be thin or pretty. You got to be what? Prettier. You got to be thinner. It's not enough to be strong. You got to be what? Stronger. It's not enough to be smart. You've got to be smarter. Why? So I can be richer and I can get all that stuff that's nicer. In fact, there are companies that make billions of dollars a year counting on people who live in the land of Ur, who are never satisfied, never, never happy. 
Now, most of us have learned that the land of Ur is a very lonely place to live because the land of Ur really is just a mirage. That's all it is. And when you live there, what happens is it actually breeds this discontentment that fuels ingratitude. And that's a big deal because, you see, fundamentally, ingratitude is the reason why the human race is in the mess that it's in. Ingratitude is the reason, essentially, why, as human beings, Adam and Eve threw away everything they had that God gave them. You see, God made a perfect creation, the garden, maybe you know the story, and God said, it's all yours. Look around, it's all yours. All the beauty, all creation, all that I've made is for you to have and to enjoy. Knock yourself out, go wild, live here. It's all for you. Except there's one tree. Out of the millions of trees, there's a single tree. I just don't want you to touch that, okay? Don't eat from the fruit, just leave that where it is. Well, what happened? Well, one day the devil comes along who himself had lost everything in heaven because of his ingratitude. It wasn't enough all that God had given him, the greatest angel of all in, 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 in charge of, of worship for God and leading trillions of angels in worship. That wasn't enough. He wanted more. And it led to pride, it led to sin, it led to rebellion, and he had to be cast out of heaven because of the sin that, that would have been in heaven if he had stayed there. And so the same devil comes to Adam and Eve who see all the stuff God has given them, all the stuff they can enjoy, and he deceives them into believing this. I know you have all of this, but what about that? What about that? And that's what they begin to look at, the one thing that they weren't supposed to touch. They begin to, yeah, why can't we have that? And all of a sudden, because that became so prominent, all of this was forgotten. And it led to their downfall. Now, you're a parent. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Child comes to you, Dad, can I have a few dollars? Sure, honey, here you go. Here's a few bucks. Go ahead. Go buy something. You know, oh, Dad, you know, uh, my basketball shoes are wearing over. Can I get a new, pair of, a new pair of basketball shoes? They're only a couple hundred bucks. Okay, sure, we'll go down to the store and see if we can find something for you. Next day, Dad, my friends are going to Disney World for vacation. Can we go to Disney World next year? Sure, we'll look into it. Haven't been there. Sounds like a great idea. I'll, get, I'll talk to your mother get back to you. Sure. Dad, can I have a chocolate bar? Well, no, honey, you probably shouldn't eat right now because supper's just around the corner. You ruin your appetite. Oh, man, I never get anything. You ever been there? Sorry, kids, but it's true. I believe that ingratitude is really a catalyst for all my sins. The times that I wonder, the times I disobey, the times I feel like I'm not fulfilled and live enough, Ingratitude, obviously, many times is right at the heart of that. It feeds my pride. Ingratitude stirs up my jealousy. It adds fuel to the flames of lust and greed. It's just this downward spiral. What I want to focus on is this. If ingratitude is the culprit or a catalyst for all of that, then what God wants us to understand is that gratitude is the cure. There is an enormous power in simply being a thankful person. There's enormous power in being a person who is full of thanks, who is full of gratitude and wonder for all that we have. So I'm going to give you real quick here two ways that you can get out of this comparison trap, two ways, if you don't have it already, that you can develop a heart that can hold a rather large amount of gratitude. And if you'll allow the Lord to do that in your heart this morning, to peel away maybe some of the, the blinders or the things that we don't see in the goodness of God and, and begin to change that around, we can really begin to live a fulfilling life and be a blessing to others. The first thing you need to do, there's just two things. Number one, you need to start counting. 
need to start counting. Jesus said on many occasions, if you ever truly want to participate in all that God has for you, you've got to have the heart of a child. And one of the very first things a child will learn to do when they begin to talk is what? They learn to count. It's a big thing when they can learn to count. Or they can do their alphabet. I remember when Ben was three years old. I think it was about three years old. He had his alphabet down pat. And we said, Ben, show Nanny and Dad your, your alphabet. So the family's all gathered in the front room, and Ben's standing in front of them. And he says, he goes, A, B, C, D, E, F. And he goes all the way to Z. And they all applaud. He's only three years old. This miracle child obviously has great genes. Nails the alphabet at the age of three. And then they said, one of, my brother said, can you do it backwards? And Ben went, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> True story. True story. And on that day, we knew a comic was born. So one of the first things we will do is we learn to count. Some of us aren't aware of this, but in 1897, a man by the name of Jonathan Oatman, he wrote a song, but the song, though we sing it as a hymn, was actually written for the purpose of encouraging children, reminding children how important it is to always be thankful, to have gratitude, and these are the words he wrote. He wrote, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. If we want to know the joy that God really intends to fuel us every single day because the joy of the Lord is strength for us, if we want to know that, we have to get away from comparing and we have to start counting. I once counseled a, a couple, I think I might have shared this with you maybe a few years back, but in one church we pastored, we were counseling this, this precious couple in our church who were going through a very difficult time with a teenage son and all that that involved. And, and they were sincere and they loved the Lord and they were just getting so tired and frustrated. They were just really getting upset with God as well. And so we sat down and we talked about it and, and all that goes with the counseling. And, and one of them just piped up and said, Pastor, I said, what I don't get is why, why you know, we've served God so faithfully over the years. Why can't our lives be as peaceful and fulfilling as so-and-so's lives. And they were referring to a couple who was new to our church. And they had known this couple. In fact, she had worked uh, with the lady. And so they were just new to our church. And so she had known them for years. And they were Christian people as well. And said, why, you know, why couldn't our lives be like them? Because all she could see was the heartache they were going through with this child, this teenager. But what I couldn't share with them and what they didn't know till maybe many months, a year later, is that the reason this couple was now in our church is because in the previous church they attended, the husband had an affair with another woman and she was pregnant with his child. She couldn't see that. She didn't know that. All she could see was what she was going through. And she would never in a million years want to trade places. But at a time on the outside where all the focus was what we were going through, there was just this concentration on everybody else that seemed to have so much going for them but, of course, we don't know what other people are going through at different times. When we start comparing our misfortune to somebody else's perceived good fortune, we oftentimes do it to the exclusion of our own good fortune and the many good things that we do have and do enjoy. And when we do that, what happens? We begin to lose hope. When we focus on our misfortune and look at everybody else around us and compare we lose hope 
and strength that we need to get us through what we're going through. So we need to stop comparing, and we need to start counting. Came across a good definition of contentment. I changed it a little bit, but it says this. Contentment is not the acquiring of all we want. It's the awareness of all we already have. And really, I've found over the years the key to happiness, it's not what you have. It's learning to want what you already have. Learning to appreciate what you already have. Just start counting. I believe with all my heart that as believers once in a while, we need to sit down and we just need to count the goodness of God. I've done this myself this week, just taking a notepad, sitting down, and saying, okay, what am I thankful for? What, what, what can I count as blessings, good things that I'm, that I'm thankful for? And you may even want to take another column and say, well, I'm going to also write down things that are struggles for me or needs that I have or things that I, I don't like. And I have found that if you do those two lists honestly, what you'll discover is at the end of the list, you will discover that you are indebted to God's goodness. The one column can never be reconciled with the other column. It's just too long. If you really, really think about all the things that you should be thankful for this morning. I'll give you an idea. Here's my, my edited list, but simply this. I just wrote down, I thank God for the privilege of being a husband and a father. I thank God for two legs that can walk. I thank him for two eyes that can see all the beauty around me. I thank the Lord for grape nut ice cream and orange pineapple ice cream. I do. I'm the only one that buys it. There's always lots there when I get there. I thank the Lord for a car that runs. I thank the Lord that I have health enough to work. I thank the Lord as I get close to 55 years next month. I thank the Lord for Advil. I do. And some of you are saying, I've got some right here. I'd never leave the house without it. It gets you through your day. But most of all, and this just kind of struck me. I mean, we know this, but it just struck me. It just dawned on me, Lord, I thank you. Father, because of what Jesus did for me, that today is just one of trillions of days for me. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever. I'm never going to die. This body is going to wear out, but to me, I'm never going to die because of what God did for me. If he does nothing else for me, I am saved. I am forgiven. I'm going to live for eternity, and I can also experience some heaven here in this world. Trillions and trillions of years ahead. You just need to start counting. Uh, Vanessa and I, as you know, for our anniversary, went down to the Caribbean. We were down for a little cruise there. And you go to different islands, you know, you do little excursions and things like that. I noticed on one island they had these uh, glass-bottom boat tours. You know what I'm talking about? You ever stick a little picture there? Glass-bottom boat tours. The interesting thing about a glass-bottom boat tour is that when it's on, on the dock, everybody gets in the boat, and they all kind of scramble around for the best seat around the, looking, you know, around the bottom so they can, they can see. But there's not a whole lot to see when you're at the dock. But as soon as the captain is, everybody on board, they're all looking at the water. All you see is sand, but hey, it's wonderful. You don't get to look through a boat too often unless you're going to sink. So they're, they're all looking down. And then when they take the ropes off, the captain just takes off from the dock. And he's just speeding out, you know, for a little while, out to get to the best coral reef that he knows he can find. And when the boat starts to move, everybody sits back. Why? Because it's just a blur. You know, you're, he's just racing out there. The water's skimming. You're skimming over the surface, and, and you can't see anything. But then once the captain arrives at the reef, he turns off the motor, and everything gets quiet, and all the fish begin to come around. All, everything begins to come to life again. And everybody looks through the bottom of the boat, and they just see this incredible world of beauty 
that was just a couple feet below the surface the whole time. It was always there. You just couldn't see it when the boat is speeding through the water. And you know, one of the problems for us is we're all real good at just racing through life. Racing through our week. Oh, it's Monday. I can't wait till Friday. Till Friday. We may slow down a little bit, but we just race from day to day, from one thing to the next thing. And you know what the sadness of that is? We miss every day so much of what is just beneath the surface. And friends, hear me this morning. The only way you are ever going to experience the beauty of all that God is doing around us is to learn to slow down more and reflect more and notice more and thank God more. Frederick Beecher wrote these words, and they just really struck me. He said this. He said, listen to your life. Listen to your life. We have the quote up there. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and the pain of it, no less than in the excitement and the gladness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the final analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that well said? I'm not going to read the whole thing, just that first line again. Just listen to your life and see it for the fathomless mystery that it is. Some of you here today know what I'm talking about because over the last several weeks, or the last few weeks, you've made the decision, obedience to the Holy Spirit, to slow your life down. You've made the decision to come away and find a quiet place with the Lord. You've made a decision that, Lord, I'm going to begin to hear, listen for, and obey your promptings. I'm just going to begin to do what I feel you telling me to do, and I'm going to talk with someone or do something or pray with someone, whatever the case may be. And we had just heard week after week, story after story after story of people who were just slowing the boat down. They're saying, I'm not going to skim through the week. I'm not going to skim through the day. I'm going to start my day and say, Lord, what are you doing today? And when you do that, all of a sudden you begin to realize there's a whole lot of grace going on all around you. You begin to realize that God is at work when you slow down. Now you can begin to see things of what God is doing. I love what Dr. Jack Hayford said at the conference many, many years ago. And he wasn't saying it at the break. He was just making a point of the power of a focused life. And he said, all of my Christian life, he said, when I wake up in the morning, every single day, he's in his 70s now, he said, I have never gotten out of bed once with my feet touching the floor. My knees always touch the floor first. I take my, the bed sheet, the covers off, and I turn in such a way that my knees touch the ground first. It may be just for five seconds, Lord, saying, Lord, I give you this day. It may be for 20 minutes of quiet time in prayer. But he said, it's always my knees first. And what he's implying is this, is that when we hit the ground running every morning, we will miss all that God is doing. And we will miss the excitement and the joy of what it really means to walk with God. And we won't have a whole lot of reasons to be thankful or, or be grateful because all we'll see is all the stress and all the stuff that we think we need to get done and need to be doing and how do we need to keep up with the Joneses, whatever the case may be. We don't stop, we don't slow down, and we don't become part of things that actually bring joy to your life. And the greatest things, as all of us know who've taken the time, the greatest joy you'll ever experience is just the presence of God upon your life and through your life as you just touch lives around you. There's, there's no greater high than that. 
There's no greater joy. That's why the Lord said, if you'll seek first my kingdom, if you'll wake up in the morning and walk through the day being aware of my kingdom, everything you need will be given to you. Don't worry about that. Whatever your need is, Jesus said, the Father knows it in advance. He will take care of you. There's a greater joy that he wants you to know. There are greater riches that he wants you to experience. There's the fulfillment. There's a life of worship and wonder and joy that he wants you to live in. It doesn't mean there's no struggles, but even in the struggle, there is strength. Why? Because you have a joy. You have a track record of who God is and what God has done and how God is real to you, and you're able to hold on to him in those hard times. But if you're just blowing through life, Friends, you don't even know where the anchor is when you need it. You don't know. And hard times come, and you don't know. God's still there, but you don't know his voice. You don't know his touch. You don't know his promptings. You don't know what decisions to make because you don't know him. And the Lord says, if you'll slow down a little, pause a little, think a little, reflect a little, give thanks, it can radically change your life. Paul said to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we will take nothing out of it. You ever think about that? I mean, honestly, think about this. You came into the world naked and with nothing in your hands. And now look where you are. Really. You started off naked, empty-handed, and now look at you. You're clothed. Thank the Lord. You're clothed. Just consider all that you have. For someone who came into this world with absolutely nothing, however it came to you, it's still the provision of God. He says, start counting. And secondly, we need to share the joy. Need to start counting, need to share the joy. Augustine said, all try their hardest to reach the same goal, and that is joy. That's really what all of us are after, isn't it? Remember the movie The Bucket List? Came out a number of years ago. It's basically a story about doing all the kinds of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. And as the subtitle says, it infers that if you can do your bucket list, that's how you'll find your joy. And it's not a bad thing to have a bucket list. I mean, God wants us to be goal-oriented. He wants us to be task-oriented. He wants to accomplish things he shows us to do. That's not a bad thing. We should all have goals. Now, your goal may be uh, to see certain countries before you die. Your goal may be to go skydiving. Uh, Pastor Chris and I wouldn't recommend that. Tried it. It was great. One time's enough. Uh, it may be skydiving. You know, your goal may be to you know, stay four seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu or to ride the horse out in front of Walmart. I don't know. Whatever your bucket list is, you know, there's all things that we feel that we want to do. Why? Because fundamentally, it's good to be adventurous. It's good to have those goals. But there's part of us that, that is trying to find significance in that. We, 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 want, to, you know, we want to try to find that, that significance. And so we, we have these goals. The important thing to remember is this, that true joy is not found in some paradise location. It's not found in some kind of rush of adrenaline. The only place we really needed to visit before we kicked the bucket, it's not the land of Ur, it's just the land of gratitude. To find that place, to find that place in life of worship and wonder that knows the goodness of God. I can honestly say this morning that I want gratitude to be at the top of my bucket list. Because gratitude, thankfulness, is the key to finding joy. There's a great story in Luke 17. I was actually going to preach on that, but it went another way. And, and Jesus uh, heals, actually, 10 men who had been suffering with the terrible disease of leprosy. We're all, I'm sure, aware of what leprosy is. And, and the story goes on and says this. One of them, one of those lepers, when he saw he was healed, he came back to Jesus, praising God in a loud voice. 
He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. The reason they mentioned he was a Samaritan is because Jews despised Samaritans. They, they believed that Samaritans were rejected by God, could never receive anything from God. So Jesus asked him, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now think about that. Why would Jesus say your faith has made you well to somebody who was already well? To somebody who was already healed. He could see that the leprosy wasn't there anymore. So he came well. He came healed. And yet Jesus says, rise up and go, your faith has made you well. And I think the reason is because it's one thing to be physically healed. And don't underestimate that. That is wonderful if you are sick. But it's even more amazing to be healed on the inside. It's even more amazing to be a person who doesn't just receive from the goodness of God and then walk away, but receives from the goodness of God and actually falls in love with God and begins to walk in a relationship with Him. That's what saves you. Uh, there are many people, and I've known my ministry uh, through the years as well, who have been healed, who have experienced supernatural things at the hand of God, but never gave their life to Christ. And unless they do, they will be eternally separated from God when they, when they leave this world. But for the person who receives and understands what it means and in gratitude responds to God, they begin to enter into a relationship with him, which is salvation. That's what that word well is in the Greek language. Well is the Greek word sozo, which is the word salvation. Your faith has saved you, Jesus said. You're healed physically, but your faith, your response to me, has actually saved your soul. You know, I've been asked over the years, and I'm sure you have been as well if you're a believer, a uh, mature believer. You know, I've been asked over the years many times, and I've heard people speak on this and wax eloquent. They say, Pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? You know, I really want to know God's will. I don't want to miss God's will. And, and usually I'll just take them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in which Paul says this. Will you read this with me? There we go. Always be joyful, never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And usually when I say that, the person will be polite, but they'll say something like this. Yeah, I know, Pastor. I know, but what I mean is, how can I know God's specific will for me right now? To which I answer, oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood the question. Okay, well, in that case, here's the answer. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful to God, not for, but in, in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ. In other words, in the midst of whatever you are in, whether it's trial, whether it's just trying to discern, whether it's confused, whatever, he says, if you will just stop, if you will just say, Lord, in the midst of whatever it is, I need joy. I want to start with joy. That's my strength. Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm not just going to go to the advice of friends. I'm not going to go on the internet and try to find an answer. I'm going to bow before you. I'm going to quiet my heart. I'm going to stop the boat. I'm going to look through that glass and see what you will show me. And Lord, in the midst of everything, I'm going to be thankful because all things work together for the good for those who love God and are the called of God according to his purposes. And Lord, your word says, this is your will for me. And in that, I know I will discover how you want me to move from here. So, Start counting, share the joy, and God will lead you. You see, it's not joy that makes us grateful. It's gratitude that makes us joyful. 
There's a difference. We want our circumstances to change. Well, then I'll be joyful. Lord says, no, you don't understand. The joy is so much more exciting when you can have it in the midst of your circumstances and let your joy actually begin to change things around you or at least change you and how you respond to them. In the land of Israel, there's a mountain range, as most of you are aware, in the southern part of it actually extends into Israel. It's called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, as you can see, it's actually covered with snow in the winter months. In fact, if you can believe it, there's actually a ski resort in Mount Hermon uh, in Israel. And so it's a beautiful mountain in the winter, as you can see. But when the spring comes and the weather warms up, all that snow begins to melt. And it goes down the mountain and it dumps into the Jordan River. Jordan River is a beautiful river, fresh water. There's life there. There's, people enjoy the beauty of it. it. It irrigates much of the land in, 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 uh, in Palestine and so on. Just beautiful river. Well, the Jordan River itself actually flows into the Sea of Galilee. We've all heard about this. And this is all in the northern part of Israel, of course, in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is just teeming with life, fish, and there's beaches, and people swim, and they got their boats out there sailing. Just a beautiful, beautiful body of fresh water. Well, in the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, there's the Jordan River again. The Jordan goes from the top right through into the bottom and begins to come out the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And once again, we just have this beautiful river flowing down to another body of water that is called the Dead Sea. And we know why it's called the Dead Sea, right? It's because nothing can live in it. And the reason nothing can live in it is because there's no outlet out of the Dead Sea. All this beautiful water flows into this body of water at the bottom, but because it has no outlet itself, that becomes stagnant. And absolutely nothing can actually live in the Dead Sea. Two bodies of water, both receiving life-giving water from the same source, the same mountain. The only difference is this. The Sea of Galilee, it gives and it lives the Dead Sea, it hoards, and it dies. And friends, one of the things we've been learning these past number of weeks is that if we only receive from God, but we never intentionally look for ways to pour out to others, it's not long before our joy shrivels up. It's not long before we just kind of focus on ourselves and our problems or our staleness, whatever the case may be, but there's not a whole lot of life going on anymore. But I've discovered that the, that the heart that actually counts the blessings of God and then looks for ways to share those blessings with others is the heart that God just keeps filling and keeps refreshing. And there's just a river, the Holy Spirit, who flows through us and keeps us fresh and alive, and there's joy, and there's ministry, and there's just the presence of God. And when that happens, thanksgiving actually becomes thanksgiving. So I have a little assignment for you. I'm going to ask Pastor Chris and the musicians to come as we close with a song this morning. I'm going to ask our ministry team as well to be ready to minister. Uh, for those who may want just to receive a word of prayer or touch from God, whatever your need may be, we want to give you that opportunity before you leave this morning. But here's your assignment. Number one, you don't have to write this down because I know you'll remember it. I know you remember everything I say. Remember these two things. Number one, decide that you are not going to speed through this day and this week. That you're not going to miss all that God is doing just beneath the surface. Decide today that you're going to slow down more, you're going to reflect more, you're going to thank God more. And if you will do that, you'll discover that God will begin to grow in you a heart that can hold a large amount of gratitude. And you know the beautiful thing is when you really have a heart that is full of thankfulness, you can almost be in any situation, talk to any person, find yourself in anything, any circumstance, and the largeness of your heart is actually able to absorb the smallness of hearts around you. And you're able to minister, and that can flow out of you and bring healing. 
And the second thing is, be intentional in finding ways to share that joy with others. Be intentional this week. If you haven't done so already, we've talked about Kickstart teams and ministry teams we have going throughout the city and in the parks and whatever the case may be, or it just, just may be you in your workplace, but your heart desire be, Lord, I just pray this week that I would have an outflow of all that you're doing in my life, all that you're showing me. Lord, lead me to people that I can just share it with. Lead me to people I can talk to, I can encourage, I can pray with, just people that I can share the joy with. Because one of the things you discover is that as you pour out, what happens? The Lord just pours in. In fact, it's really neat when the Lord uses you, as he promised, the Holy Spirit, that river just bubbles up within you, and you're stoked. You're hooked. You just, you just see what God is doing, and you want to keep giving it away. And one of the ways you do that is by being a thankful person.